This is Amazing Things, and I'm Adam Belmar. Today, a special newsmaker edition of the podcast from Building One at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, with the NIH director, Dr. Francis Collins. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Collins. I'm glad to be your uh, interviewee today. Looking forward to the conversation. The Amazing Things podcast is presented by United for Medical Research because America's investment in medical research through the National Institutes of Health is making amazing things possible. Learn more at unitedformedicalresearch.com. Well, let's start with precision medicine. The NIH's historic new effort called the All of Us Research Program to gather data from one million or more Americans to accelerate research, improve health, and enable researchers to take into account the differences in our lifestyles, environment, and biology. What's new here, sir, and why is it so exciting? Well, everything's new here in terms of the scale that we're talking about trying to collect every imaginable kind of information from one million Americans who will be our partners in this effort. They are not human subjects. They're partners uh, in this effort to figure out what it is that plays out in terms of health or illness. Everybody remembers the Framingham study, and it's, of course, still going on. started in 1948, taught us an awful lot about cardiovascular disease, studied about 25,000 people over decades, and was enormously valuable in terms of what we were able to learn about cholesterol and smoking and hypertension. What we're talking about here, though, is 40 times larger and aims to collect an even larger um, kind of data set, environmental exposures, diet, lifestyle, genomics, all kinds of health behaviors, uh, family history, all of that information packed together in such a large data set and focused not solely on one condition, but on all conditions, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, asthma, on down that list with a million people, you're gonna have that kind of power to dissect what really are the factors that play out and whether somebody gets sick. And if they do, how do we manage that chronic illness most effectively? And this will be a million people who are excited about research and who are going to be regularly in touch with the program and who are pre-consented for contact about participation in other studies. If they happen to be, for instance, somebody with diabetes and you want to start a trial about a new artificial pancreas, you will have a very nice glide path towards initiating such a clinical trial with people who are already highly motivated and on whom a lot of data has already been collected. All of this data has to be then made accessible to the broadest range of researchers so that we can make the most of it. So that's another unique aspect of this. Anybody who is a qualified researcher with a reasonable idea will be able to go at the anonymized data set and figure out what we can learn from it. So this is on a, a platform that we haven't previously tried to reach, at least not at this scale. So a lot of us are pretty excited about it. I will tell you, it's a personal dream of mine for probably at least two decades. I actually wrote a paper in 2004 about how important it would be for the United States of America to have such a study. It landed with a loud thud because at that point it was utterly impractical. All the things we were talking about were too expensive. Electronic health records were generally not available. Genomics was out of sight as far as cost. All those things have changed. Now it is practical. And now we're not just talking about it. We are doing it. The program launched on May the 6th of 2018. 
in a big show that was held across the country, seven different locations. I was in New York at the Abyssinian Baptist Church for part of the launch, emphasizing again another incredibly important feature of this. It's a diverse group. We want to have at least half of the people in this one million strong cohort coming from traditionally underrepresented groups in terms of racial and ethnic minorities, but also underrepresented groups, lower socioeconomic status. So we've been in, enrolled people through community health centers, um, as well as rural communities, which often don't get as much attention as the urban ones. So that's another part of why this is so ambitious. I'm happy to tell you that we have now crossed the 100,000 mark of signups for this. So well on the way to a million. You're listening to the Amazing Things podcast brought to you by United for Medical Research. And we are joined today by the director of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins. Sir, from Capitol Hill to local newscasts around the nation, it seems that the opioid crisis is making headlines almost every day. Can you tell us how NIH, through research initiatives, partnerships, is working to address this public health crisis? And what's promising about what's being done in the area of new approaches to pain management and or safer opioid molecules? It is a national health crisis, and we need all hands on deck to address it. And NIH is very much in that mode And we're not new to this game. We have the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which has been focused on issues like opioid addiction for many, many years. But as the public concern has grown, as more and more people have suffered from opioid use disorder or died in a terribly sad circumstance of an opioid overdose, the intensity has gone up both for us and for everybody else. We've also had for many years a pain consortium that brings together expertise at NIH to focus on research that ought to teach us more about pain and how to manage it, which is obviously critical now to get away from the use of addictive opioids, especially in chronic pain where they're not particularly effective and obviously have lots of other negative consequences. But especially in the last couple of years, we have held a number of very significant public workshops involving participants from academia, from industry, from advocacy, from public policy to try to figure out what could we NIH do uh, to accelerate progress in this space. And we are now engaged in a very vigorous way in following up on those recommendations, much assisted by the fact that the Congress in the FY18 omnibus bill provided an additional $500 million to NIH for this. We call this the HEAL initiative, H-E-A-L, which stands for Helping End Addiction Long-Term. The long-term is important in there. It took us many years to get into this very difficult situation where maybe more than 2 million people are currently addicted to opioids. We're not going to get out of it overnight, and we need to make those investments to be sure that we're touching all the right bases uh, to try to move forward better treatments for addiction, better treatments for overdose, and the development of non-addictive pain medicines that will be useful alternatives for people who suffer from pain every day. And there's 25 million Americans in that space. This is urgent. We just hear now over 70,000 individuals uh, dying of drug overdoses, most of those opioids. The arrival of fentanyl in the heroin supply and carfentanil, another very distressing circumstance because of the potency of those drugs, which makes it all too easy uh, for inadvertent overdoses to happen. Uh, We have to do everything we can to try to step in on that. So what are we doing? Well, basically, 
The National Institute on Drug Abuse has continued their efforts, but now expanded them to come up with better alternatives for treating addiction for those who are looking for treatment. Because still, most of the time, people who would benefit from those treatments aren't getting access to them. We have a long way to go. And that means coming up with alternatives uh, for medication-assisted treatment that are more amenable uh, to what people need. We have methadone, we have buprenorphine, we have naltrexone. But if we had those three drugs in a variety of different kinds of approaches in terms of duration and uh, what kind of monitoring is needed, we'd be able to better uh, assist people who are looking for help. And we're working hard on that, as well as looking for other ways uh, to treat addiction that aren't on that short list of three. And with overdoses, we understand that sometimes the approach to that, which was co-developed by NIDA and by a small company, namely the nasal administration of Narcan, may not be potent enough for somebody who's had a fentanyl overdose. So we're figuring out ways to make the antidote even better. And certainly now when it comes to developing new pain medicines, working with industry, we are trying to accelerate progress in dozens of promising compounds that have been moving rather slowly through the pipeline and which might turn out to be very appropriate alternatives for treatment of pain that don't hit that same opioid receptor and therefore are not so addictive. All of that's happening. In addition to that, we're deeply concerned about neonates that are born to mothers who've been addicted. We don't have an optimum way to treat neonatal abstinence syndrome. And we don't know what happens to those children over time in terms of what that does to the wiring of the brain. All of that is part of our HEAL initiative. Perhaps most ambitiously, we have a program called Healing Communities where we are currently looking for three areas in the country that would be willing to step in and be our uh, mediators of a plan to bring together all of the players in trying to deal with this crisis. The primary care providers, the addiction treatment centers, the emergency rooms, the police, the fire departments, the criminal justice system, the state health department, the faith-based organizations. If we brought all of those entities together, and coordinated this effort, could we in fact make a dramatic difference in the tragedy that's now happening? That's going to get underway in the next few months. If it works in three areas that are carefully chosen because they're particularly hard hit, then maybe we've got something we could extrapolate to the whole country. Going back to 2016, United for Medical Research launched this, the Amazing Things podcast with an eye towards revealing the amazing things that America's investment in biomedical research through the National Institutes of Health is making possible. And as you mentioned, one, so far we've told stories of the first ever gene therapy to treat blindness, rapid cancer detection, artificial organs like the biohybrid kidney and the bionic pancreas, and even LED light-based treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And I was wondering if you could take us to that cutting edge, Dr. Collins. What's on the cusp of being able to be done today that maybe we didn't even think was possible five to 10 years ago? I'd love to, because that's the fun part of this job. I get to look across the entire landscape of biomedical research and see the things that are becoming possible that were unimaginable a few years ago. So maybe I'll give you three. One is the brain initiative. The idea that we might, with the development of new technologies, be able to figure out how the brain actually works, how those circuits uh, in our 86 billion neuron brain are able to do amazing things that we've currently 
just begun to glimpse and we could do much better with with this brain initiative which is now three and a half years along this means inventing technologies that can assess the function of hundreds of thousands or millions of neurons working together in a circuit in real time and we're making remarkable progress in that so we aim by 2025 as part of the brain initiative to have uncovered some profoundly significant features of how the brain works, new principles. How does a memory get laid down? How do you retrieve it? All those things will be, I think, emerging in the next seven or eight years. So a very exciting place to watch. And every day there's some new technology that sort of takes your breath away in terms of the kinds of things we can start to see happening. Second, I'm very excited about the potential of new genetic opportunities to treat uh, illnesses that seemed out of reach, and particularly the whole advance called gene editing with CRISPR-Cas, which came out of the most obscure kind of basic science, which is, by the way, a great lesson of why NIH should continue to support basic science, and we do more than half of our budget. Now we have this system that can go in and fix one letter in the DNA code if that would be desirable. And the, the application that I am most excited about right now is to the first molecular disease, sickle cell disease. Discovered more than 100 years ago, back when I was a postdoc, I worked on sickle cell disease, trying to come up with some ideas about how we might treat this disease. And it just seemed like, well, maybe it would happen in my lifetime, maybe it wouldn't. But now look where we are. We've known a lot about this disease. We know it affects the bone marrow. We know how to take out bone marrow cells and work on them. So, okay, here's the strategy bone marrow from somebody with sickle cell disease, purify those hematopoietic stem cells, utilize the magic of CRISPR-Cas to fix that mutation, expand those cells, make some room in the bone marrow by giving somebody a sort of moderate ablation protocol and then give them back their now cured, no longer sickle cell, red cells. And it's not one of those things where you need then immunosuppression for the rest of your life. These are your cells. It's an autotransplant. I think that's going to work in the next five years. I think we're going to cure this disease. Not have a treatment that sort of works, but a cure. I'm so excited to see that emerging. Third, again, because it's so breathtaking in its sweep, cancer immunotherapy. And particularly the recent things that are happening that look as if that approach, which has been so amazingly successful for melanoma and leukemia and lymphoma, might also work for those solid tumors that have been so resistant. Pancreatic cancer, prostate, breast, ovarian cancer, brain cancers. All of those seem to be kind of resistant to the immunotherapy approach, but they shouldn't be. Those cancers are making abnormal proteins. The immune system ought to be able to see if we knew how to rev it up. And recent developments, especially by Steve Rosenberg here at NIH, make me optimistic that that pathway is beginning to take shape. And what a uh, phenomenal set of advances that could be for people who have metastatic disease, for a solid tumor like pancreatic cancer, to have the chance of being not just treated, but cured. Got to get excited about that. We talked about precision medicine, and I want you to talk about chronic disease. In America, about half of the U.S. population is affected by chronic disease, and that represents about 70%, I understand, of all U.S. deaths and three-quarters of all health care costs in the United States. NIH has played a profound role in treatments and research along these lines. Can you give us an idea of your forecast for emphasis on the future of treating chronic disease? Well, chronic disease, as you've just said, is an absolutely critical part of the research agenda. It has been, it is now, it will be. And that means both 
efforts to identify means of prevention and efforts to treat chronic disease when it occurs. The All of Us program specifically has as one of its goals uh, to provide the kind of rich data set that we otherwise might not have about common chronic illnesses. So that is one area, but not the only one. Look at the major investments that are now happening for Alzheimer's disease, which everyone is aware is a critical need. And there are exciting things happening in that space after a very tough and frustrating uh, period of many years where it didn't seem like we were making progress. Now some glimmers that we may be onto something if we can identify individuals at high risk early on and start the treatment even before there is any symptoms as far as cognitive decline. Diabetes, obviously a critical area of research. When I look and see the progress that's being made, maybe particularly through a partnership called the Accelerating Medicines Partnership that has brought together NIH with industry partners in an open science, pre-competitive way to identify new potential drug targets. That's pretty exciting. When you look and see what's happened with the artificial pancreas based upon advances in regenerative medicine, that's exciting. Uh, certainly with cancer, we want to turn cancer into a chronic disease, or better yet, to cure it. And the advances there, NIH will continue to highlight. And I appreciate UMR's focus on this. This is a very important area for us to shine a bright light on. Before we end the uh, interview, I also want to say how much it has been a privilege for me to be able to serve in this role now for nine years. And I know that you recently interviewed Tom Cole, and I just want to also say that the progress we're making right now in terms of support, seeing now steady increases in NIH's uh, resources over the course of the last three years, hopefully about to be four, would never have happened without that kind of really strong congressional leadership from people like Chairman Cole and Chairman Blunt in the Senate. And as UMR goes around talking uh, to very various folks about the importance of medical research. I hope you're also saying thank you uh, to some of those remarkable heroes that have emerged uh, in the Congress in the last few years and who have made medical research such a strong priority. That gives great excitement and hope uh, to all of us who work in this area, especially those young investigators who are just getting started and who now have this confidence that there's a stable trajectory for their support that has emerged. And so they're ready to take it on and come up with bright, capable, innovative, risky ideas. And, and that's what, exactly what we need to see happening. And we want to extend a thank you to you, Dr. Francis Collins, Director of the National Institutes of Health, for a near decade of leadership and work before that. Thank you for joining us on the Amazing Things Podcast. It's been a pleasure. The Amazing Things Podcast is presented by United for Medical Research. Because America's investment in medical research through the National Institutes of Health is making amazing things possible. Learn more at unitedformedicalresearch.com.